Protests continue to convulse Iran following the death in police custody of the young Kurdish woman Masha Amini. For three weeks they've gone on right across the country, often involving the ceremonial burning of the headscarf. Now, it is compulsory for women in Iran to cover their heads, but these protests are about much more than clothing rules. Dr Nahid Siam Dust is an Iranian scholar. She's currently an assistant professor in Middle East Studies at the University of Texas. The hijab and its compulsion or its enforcement really just became a lightning rod for what ensued, which is the culmination of years and years of grievances against all sorts of conditions that the state imposes on its people, whether it's bad relations with the rest of the world, bad economy because of those bad relations, corruption, impunity, uh, lack of justice, lack of accountability, and of course, topped off by the fact and all of those things sort of uh, manifest themselves in the fact that women can be just picked off the street for having presumably bad hijab. You know, when you look at Masa Amini, I mean, by by today's standards, her hijab was pretty impeccable, and yet she was picked off the streets. Sort of the sense that you can never be quite safe in the streets of your own city and country. Yeah, this uh, protest movement, it's led largely by young people, and uh, history tells us that revolutions tend to be successful when they're led by the young. The other interesting Mm -hmm. thing is it's led largely by women. I mean, how unexpected Mm -hmm. was that in Iran? Not that unexpected, Andrew. I mean, when you look at the women's movement, it's been quite vibrant for over a century Starting, if you want to go back to Loretta Ain in the 1850s, who already at her execution declared that you can kill me, but you will never be able to stop women's emancipation. And then onward through the Constitutional Revolution. And then 1979, women played a great role in the revolution to topple the Shah. And soon after, Ayatollah Khomeini declared that they needed to cover up in the government's ministries. And they rose up and they had the biggest demonstration soon after the revolution, demanding that they be given the choice Unfortunately, the population at large, especially the men who were equally at the forefront of that revolution, didn't think that was an important enough issue. And so the women's movement was sort of, you know, left deserted. And so women put up four decades of an imposed hijab that they didn't have to deal with in pre-revolutionary Iran. So it had been decades of living in a situation where they had the choice. And so, you know, throughout the Islamic Republic, they've also been very active, whether it's on the legal and political fronts or on civil society and rights fronts. It's been a lot of women fighting those campaigns. Yeah. Now, that's interesting, Nahid, because over the past few years, we've seen some incremental but concrete improvements in women's rights. I mean, there was some significant changes to family law, I think, as recently as 2017. There's been a woman vice Mm -hmm. president of Iran. What has stalled this progress? The progress has been very slow. And so women have been fighting for these rights. But at the end of the day, if you don't automatically give custody of the children to the husband, but stipulate some qualifications, that just didn't go far enough. And so the progress has been slow. And of course, we've had the recent president, Ibrahim Raisi, who, not unlike Ahmadinejad before him, actually, but even more so is a conservative president who came into office and soon after imposed harsher restrictions on women's clothes in the public sphere. The backlash that we see is both a backlash against this very long arc of repression, but also against fairly recent conditions. What's the deeper meaning behind 
the chant that's becoming very, very popular. I mean, it's the signature chant of -hmm. the protests, Women, Life, Freedom. Yeah, so the chant was picked up actually from the Kurdish women's liberation movement, Jinjian Azadi. And it was really first formulated by uh, Syrian Kurds fighting ISIS and uh, liberating pockets of populations there. And so when Mahsa Amini, who was a Kurd, was killed at her graveside, the chant Jinjian Azadi was invoked by the people there and was soon adopted within Persian-speaking populations of Iran, which is, of course, the majority. And the significance is that, you know, there won't be liberation for all or freedom for all for the entire nation unless there's liberation for women. It is very much sort of a chant that centers the liberation of women at the core of what it means to be liberated from authoritarian and repressive governments. I know it's a cry from the heart. There's no question about that. But mm-hmm. is there also a, mm-hmm. a, a deeper political strategy in this, convincing those who would seek to write off these demonstrations as perhaps the demonstrations of, of radical, even heretical women? No, no, it's not that. Mm-hmm. It's a demonstration for all of us. Yes, and we see that because it's not just women who are chanting it all across Iran. You know, in over 90 cities, we've seen protests and it's been men as much as women who've been chanting the slogan, you know, Zan Zindagi Azadi, Woman Life Freedom. And so I know there's a sort of anti-woman trend all over the world. And so we might be predisposed to view that as some kind of radical chant. But when you look at it within the Iranian context, it's really just a very organic chant that's come from these decades of repression of women, which has manifested itself also in the repression of the population at large. I notice that it's not just women opposed to the hijab who have been taking part in these demonstrations in all the, the welter of reportage that I've read. Mm-hmm. There are many women who, who are very supportive of the hijab, but they also see a necessity to rise up as mm-hmm. well. What's behind that? Well, you see, these protests are not against Islam and they're not against hijab. This is not an uprising against Islam. This is simply an uprising against repression and it's calling for freedom. So the issue is choice, giving women the choice and giving the population the choice to live the lives that they would like to live. And, you know, when you look back at the time of the 1979 revolution, in those demonstrations against the enforced hijab, there were also chaduri women, women enveloped in these black cloaks and headscarves. So this is not simply a movement by women who are inherently sort of against the hijab. And it's got an interesting history because what happened when the Shah's government actually banned the hijab way back in, I think, uh, the late 1930s, what actually Mm -hmm. happened to the plight of women back then? It really didn't help at all in the long arc of enforcing and policing women's bodies because when the Shah banned uh, the hijab in 1937, I believe it was, women, many women just never left their homes because covering up was just an act of decency and it was how they were very much used to moving around in the public sphere. It actually allowed them to move around in the public sphere, gave them this protection. And so I think, you know, when we look at the enforced hijab of 1979, we have to look at it as a backlash against that initial ban in the late 1930s. Where is the balance struck by Iranian women in wanting considerably more basic human rights, but at the same time not wanting their country to become 
exactly like the West? This has been at the forefront of some feminist discussions. Iranian women are not asking for their country to become like the West. They are asking for themselves to be given the freedom to articulate and to formulate what that future, what that projected Iran of their imaginations looks like. And, you know, they're not calling for foreign intervention. They're very clear about that. This is a movement that's coming very much from within. And we would have to leave it up to the population in a democratic form to determine what that form would ultimately look like. Iranians, culturally, they have a lot of sensibilities about what is decent and what is okay in the public sphere. And there is certainly a range, but they are not projecting to look like the West. Just finally, Nahid, I noticed that uh, Kim Hattas, writing in The Atlantic, and she's written a lot about the Middle East, she said something Mm -hmm. feels like it's coming undone, as though the project of the Islamic Republic is running out of steam. And she's pointed to protests across the Islamic world, particularly in her home country of Lebanon, uh, but also in Mm -hmm. neighbouring Iraq, women's protests in solidarity. Could there be a thread that is being pulled that might actually undo right across the region? There have been movements over the last few years against the authoritarian regimes in countries like we saw a few years ago, these protests in Lebanon against their incompetent government. And I think the population and the people are afoot. They're afoot in trying to achieve and demand the futures that they would like to inhabit and live rather than the futures that are predetermined for them by an elite whose ideology and imagination of this Islamic utopia no longer is aligned with what the population at large is envisioning. I think we see some of that, but of course, you know, authoritarian has been on the rise across the world. And so I don't think we've seen the hopefulness or the, you know, defiance that we see within these recent protests in too many other places recently. Well, it's very good to speak with you, Dr. Nahid Siamdust. She's an assistant professor in Middle East and Media Studies at the University of Texas. We're going to put a link to her recent article in the New Lines magazine on our website. Nahid, thank you for joining us on the Religion and Ethics Report. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew.